Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right, it's my turn. I picked a story called To Build a Fire by Jack London. Classic. Yes. The old-timer on Sulphur Creek was right. He thought in the moment of controlled despair that ensued. After 50 below, a man should travel with a partner. He beat his hands but failed in exciting any sensation. Suddenly, he bared both hands, removing the mittens with his teeth. He caught the whole bunch between the heels of his hands. His arm muscles, not being frozen, enabled him to press the hand heels tightly against the matches. Then he scratched the bunch along his leg. It flared into flame, 70 sulfur matches at once. There was no wind to blow them out. He kept his head to one side to escape the strangling fumes and held the blazing bunch to the birch bark. As he so held it, he became aware of sensation in his hand. His flesh was burning. He could smell it. Deep down below the surface, he could feel it. The sensation developed into pain that grew acute. And still he endured it, holding the flame of the matches clumsily to the bark that would not light readily because his own burning hands were in the way, absorbing most of the flame. At last, when he could endure no more, he jerked his hands apart. The blazing matches fell sizzling into the snow, but the birch bark was alight. He began laying dry grasses, and the tiniest twigs on the flame. He could not pick and choose, for he had to lift the fuel between the heels of his hands. Small pieces of rotten wood and green moss clung to the twigs, and he bit them off as well as he could with his teeth. He cherished the flame carefully and awkwardly. It meant life, and it must not perish. The withdrawal of blood from the surface of his body now made him begin to shiver, and he grew more awkward. A large piece of green moss fell squarely on the little fire. He tried to poke it out with his fingers, but his shivering frame made him poke too far, and he disrupted the nucleus of the little fire. The burning grass and tiny twigs separating and scattering. He tried to poke them together again, but in spite of the tenseness of the effort, his shivering got away with him and the twigs were hopelessly scattered. Each twig gushed a puff of smoke and went out. The fire provider had failed. As he looked apathetically about him, his eyes chanced on the dog, sitting across the runes of the fire from him now, in the snow, making restless hunching movements, slightly lifting one forefoot and then the other, shifting its weight back and forth on them with wistful eagerness. The sight of the dog put a wild idea into his head. He remembered the tale of the man, caught in a blizzard who killed a steer and crawled inside the carcass and so was saved. He would kill the dog and bury his hands in the warm body until the numbness went out of them. Then he could build another fire. He spoke to the dog, calling it to him, but in his voice was a strange note of fear that frightened the animal, who had never known the man to speak in such a way before. Something was the matter, and its suspicious nature sensed danger. It knew not what danger, but somewhere, somehow, in its brain arose an apprehension of the man. It flattened its ears down at the sound of the man's voice and its restless hunching movements and the liftings and shiftings of its forefeet became more pronounced, but it would not come to the man. He got on his hands and knees and crawled toward the dog. This unusual posture again excited suspicion, and the animal sidled mincingly away. So, I forget how I came across this story, but I, I really enjoyed it, actually. I remember enjoying Jack London for all the same reasons in seventh grade, <laughs> where they were just these kind of like, um I don't want to call them simple stories, but they're like very straightforward. Like, the story at hand is the story at hand. He's trying to build a fire. So, that's the story. And in this story, he fails to do it and he dies. And there's not even necessarily, I mean, we start this story out, which is kind of interesting, with a narrator telling us that this guy doesn't think about a whole lot <laughs> he's like as this man you know walks through the beautiful wilderness he's looking at the beautiful wilderness not for its beauty but for you know what it means for his trek and he's like a very practical guy and whatever he's thoughtful but he's not contemplating in that moment you know the meaning of life or how small he is or how fragile everything is right
right? There's like this disclaimer at the beginning that like, this is not a guy that thinks this way. This is not going to be this poetic, meaningful story. So when he's like struggling to build this fire and he's like grappling with the fact that he's probably going to die, there's not even like a moment at the end, like that Hemingway story that we just read where he's in and out of consciousness because he's, what what happened with him? He's got gangrene or something. Gangrene, yeah. So he's like in a fever dream and he's doing what Hemingway does best, which is wax poetic about his stupid life. And this guy's over here just like, oh shit, I'm going to die. And he's not thinking like, I'm going to miss my family or like, I'm really sad or what a beautiful place to die. He's just like going through the actual physical reactions of it and like the kind of um, like instinctual motions that you go through where this is dire. I could do this now. I could try this now. I liked that about it. It's interesting. I forgot about that. The thing you mentioned right in the beginning, you know, he's a newcomer to the land. And this was yeah. his first winter. The trouble with him was that he was without imagination. Yeah. He was quick and alert in the things of life, but only in the things like this is like commentary on him, which I forgot because like you said, the rest of the story, and this is my main comment was it's, it's so immediate. Everything that happens right. is immediate to like the situation. We don't need a lot of backstory things that he remembers come up because they're useful to the moment they're part right. of the current moment the right. memory of them is part of the current moment they're always yeah. immediate right but that that commentary on him is like the narrator stepping back and telling us like just give it it's like a scene setting thing obviously it's a character yeah. setting thing but yeah. then once we get into him the narrator doesn't do that anymore no he's just like it's just like a disclaimer and yeah it's interesting <laughs> too he's like just so you know this guy's not gonna think a whole bo- of a whole lot yeah, he's like, you know, it's just, this is just going to be what it is. He's, he's not really that interesting yeah. of a guy. <laughs> but I wonder, too. Uh, like, although, don't worry, I'll jump into the dog's head so you can get some other point of view. Once yeah, more. yeah. The dog's <laughs> thinks of a little bit more. Yeah. But it is interesting, that section that you read where, because I, I remember that now where he talked about like his lack of imagination. That almost seems like uh, criticism in hindsight. Like maybe Jack London is like, if this guy had a little bit more of it, maybe he could have figured out a way to live or I don't know. But I don't get that sense that it's not as if this man overlooks some solution. Yeah. He was a newcomer in the land to Chakwo. I don't know how to say it. And this was his first winter has become so different that like it lands differently once you know how the story ends right right it does feel like a, a condemnation right so what I what I ended up liking about it was that because it is like so straightforward, what really comes across is for me, it was like this tone, you know, there's like no dialogue. It's just like the guy thinking to himself and calls the dog over at one point. So it's like a quiet story, you know, and it's like very sad and like lonely and like cold, literally, and like desperate. All of that comes across because of the fact that he is traveling alone and experiencing this alone and thinking out loud. And if you think about like if this were a movie, how they would have to ruin it so that we would know what was happening in his head and they would have to ruin it with like a monologue you know no. like i would be saying things you ever see that robert redford movie about him on a sailboat no there's like no dialogue he okay. might say one yeah. thing one time but it's so it just can be him. done for sure yeah it was an interesting movie and i could see this being done in the same way yeah i could see nothing. them trying yeah, and I'm sure we could think of other movies like that one where we're in moments of, uh, I mean, I'm thinking right now of the Tom Hanks movie with the volleyball. Is it Castaway? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Castaway. I mean, like, he talks then to himself a lot. they gave him Wilson so that he'd talk exactly. to him. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Like, there's only, you can only do it for so long before, like, you worry that the audience needs to hear Tom Hanks talk. 
But you gotta get paid. You gotta have lines as an actor, or else you're not gonna get the money, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, we could just cast extras. So, but obviously, the effect in prose is that it feels that way. But it's appropriate for this story because he is alone. It is the wilderness. It is desperate. It is yeah. cold and quiet. Like, I mean, there's science behind why when it snows really heavily, you go outside and things are quiet because the snow like literally deadens sound. That's right. Yeah, there's like cool things about that that actually come across in this because everything that Jack London is describing is a direct result of how this man is interacting with the setting. And yeah. my main takeaway from this was, you know, when we like read stories and people spend a lot of time like only at the beginning describing a setting, if it's especially a natural setting, they'll be like, oh, the waves are blue and the sky was blue and it was really nice out. And they think that they're being like really poetic when they, you know, describe a tree in a way they've they've never seen a tree described and then they just like get into the story and they stop describing the setting because they think that you've gotten it and i'm not saying i'm good at this and i'm sure i've talked about this on the podcast before but having moved from ohio to florida setting for me as a person and as a writer became like so much more exciting because anything that happened to me in florida happened when it was hot out you know like heat was a factor humidity was, was always a factor. Was part of it <laughs> yeah florida was like a lot florida of... can't help but be part of it exactly and just the comparison even like I'm sure if I moved from Ohio to Pennsylvania I would have like experienced something similar where like your surroundings natural world or otherwise right but especially the natural world like that is a big 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 part in the tone of your story and in here it's it's everything it's the plot it's the tone it's everything but Jack London there's like a certain um, poetry and just describing it at face value he's not over here like using metaphors and shit he's not trying to make it sound like what he's describing is he's doing it like because he wants you to be wowed by his actual prose but he just consistently is telling you what's happening around this man it's so simple it's so straightforward but i can not only picture it but i'm getting the sense of like the setting is the character like this quiet earth as it exists is that's a thing it's a presence in this story so jumping to my takeaway <laughs> like i love stories with settings like this where the setting is integral it's it's important whoever came up with the man versus man man versus yeah. self man versus nature this yeah. is like exemplar of the man yes. versus nature right yes and so the one in man versus nature is the other end it's all about the setting it's like everything that happens is his interaction with that setting right but you're right so often in writing leave that out even right. in a story where two people are talking like the setting can be an extra character kind of modulates their engagement they work through the setting to get to each other yeah and like i said it doesn't have to always be like a natural setting like they could be in an office park and talking about like the other buildings and yeah like if you want to throw something at somebody what are you going to pick up where are you yeah sure a stapler stapler in the office and you're yeah. uh, a handful of snow out in the right. park <laughs> i think we're all guilty of this where if you're reading a story and you really had to tell me like in any point in the story if i stopped you and said where are they what does it look like you might not know you might have like yeah, no yeah. clue and you might have thought up until i asked you that that you had a firm grasp because you understand what's happening you understand what the conversation has to do with what's going on next and what the thought process has to do with what's going on next but i, I would almost guarantee in most cases that like you're 
story would be richer if you told me, you know, where this character was when they were thinking this thing or where these characters were when they were talking to each other or walking, you know. That's probably one of those kind of quote unquote easy ways to thicken up a story that feels too thin. Yeah, I've found myself doing that exact thing. I've written stories, like I said, about Florida. I have to remind myself why I started writing the story and it was because Florida is really fucking hot and I had to like reinsert that. So like, yeah, there's like parts where it feels thin, but even I've lost sight of the point and so I got to go back and kind of flesh it out and yeah it feels thin until you do that I often see this advice to writers it's like okay get your first draft and then cut 10% yeah I know because you always overwrite uh-huh. I find myself doing the exact opposite it's like I right. write a skeleton yeah. and then I have to go layer crap in because I left it out it's like no this needs more setting this needs more I need another scene about this yeah. character because of that or I, you know this, right. this character feels like nothing who are they and I gotta figure that out yeah that's a really good point I wonder why that is for you like I know for me it's like a journalism thing and like a patience thing where a lot of times what I'm writing is like either concise because that's how I've learned to write or it's concise because I'm so lazy and I don't want to spend any more time on it but I wonder what is it what it is for you because yeah, I have I have to do the same thing for my work whereas I do read other people's and I'm like I would cut some of this garbage and certainly add more other things that is true the advice is not bad you do want to no. cut the 10 percent because most of the time you overwrite things or people tend to overwrite things so you cut 10 percent, but then you got to layer in the things you missed i think for me it's i have the idea and i run with the idea and i don't hang enough on it right to make it a full story but i recognize i don't turn those into the workshop <laughs> i usually yeah. recognize it and i go back and i I don't turn, I don't jot something off in like 10 minutes and then submit it I work on it and then I submit it right one thing that I noticed about the there's a two moments that that happen where it said it uses the line and then it happened so he's walking through the snow and then it happened at a place where there were no signs where the soft unbroken snow seemed to advertise solidity beneath the man broke through it was not deep he wet himself halfway to the knees before he floundered out of the firm crust this had been set up before like he had discovered one of these places where there was unfrozen water in a layer and so yeah. we knew that that was a danger and so then when it finally occurred when it happened to him the line it's introduced with and then it happened and that same yeah. thing happened later when he's trying to build the fire and he's got it going it says but before he cut the strings it happened yeah it was his own fault and this is when the snow fell on the fire so right. these, these are two pivotal moments that like kind of seal his fate right it's kind of like a narrative way to it doesn't build suspense exactly but it's a narrative way to show us that it's a pivotal thing. It feels like it goes back to his original disclaimer about this man. Like he's not imaginative, but when it says things like, and then it happened, it's like, here's a guy who he's new to this terrain, but on some level he's anticipating that at every turn there's danger in terms of what can naturally happen. Right. So to say like, and then it happened is kind of like, there's not suspense because he's aware that it's a possibility. It's not as if I was walking through this wilderness. He felt never. Yeah. Yeah, there would never be a line where it said and then it happened it'd be like and suddenly the fucking fire was doused and she had no fucking clue what to do <laughs> but right. with this character it's like he's yeah, he's going he's like oh crap yeah he's anticipating these things happen. because that's the whole point of his being out there is that he's able to anticipate this like he is specifically on this journey because he's equipped for it because he knows on some level how dangerous wilderness is so yeah it's it's if anything you're right it's not 
suspense, but it could still be like um, it's mounting dread in this story. Right. Like and then it happened is like kind of telling you that like the worst of what could happen right here happened. And now he's got to deal with this part of it. And now the worst part of what happened in this already bad scenario happened again. There's also a section right before that second one of those where he's got the fire going and this is before the snow falls on it. And he feels like the fire is beginning to burn with strength. He was feeding it with twigs the size of his finger and he feels like, OK, I, I'm going to make it. This is fine. I've dealt with it. It says in another minute, he would be able to feed it with branches the size of his wrist. Yeah. And then he could remove his wet foot gear. And yeah. while it dried, he could keep it. It's in this yeah. wood could kind of future looking tense. The kind of stuff that you always talk about really liking at the end of stories. Yeah. But this is like a uh, it's almost like he's taking his eyes off of the moment. He's looking ahead. He's, in, he's like, I've made it. Now I can like anticipate all this, what I'm going to do next instead of being in the moment. And that's when it happened. <laughs> the snow fell and and doused his fire right because i talked before about moses story being in in the immediate moment it's like told with like this tremendous immediacy this is what's happening this is what's happening it's not literally in the present tense it's in the past tense yeah but you feel it as if it's happening this is as it's happening so that little break away from that immediacy to looking into the future is important because it leads to one of it leads to his downfall sure it's also, it's almost like the only other device that a narrator has in a story like this, where it's just a single character that's not having a monologue moment, like maybe in another type of story, this main character would be explaining what he's doing. He'd be like, we're going to make the fire so we can dry our socks out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Instead of just kind of like watching him build the fire and kind of wondering as the reader, what's he thinking? What's he thinking? But I think you're right. It, it like acts as a, as like a literary device. It kind of helps us um, appreciate this downfall, like you said. There's one thing about um, when you're using tense and uh, verbs and stuff, mm -hmm. like a narrator, when you talk about point of view, narrator we often talk about it as either first, second, or third person, and we leave it at that. And that's like where you're looking from. I'm looking from the third person at a character. But what's often as important is what you're looking at, right? right? So in the third person, you're looking from out here at a character. Right. But you can also look temporally. You can look at a character's past. You can look at a character's future. You can be in the character's head. And where is the character looking? Where are his thoughts? His thoughts are in the moment. Are they ahead? Are they behind? Wow, that's really good. Good shit. So when we simplify point of view, I, I think we, we we lose sight of that. And you know, these yeah. are little things that we don't always think about, right? But they set up kind of um because what a story is is a guide for the reader's experience. All right. Yeah. It's a guide for the reader's emotional journey to go along with characters, to go along with whatever the plot is. Right. You know, so in this particular story, we're in the immediate action of this character trying to save his own life. Right. And so when the, the narrator says, Hey, look, look over here, the character's thinking about this, you know, yeah. we're also going along with that as well. And it, that's, you know, you're taking your eye off the ball in that moment. So we're sure. doing that with him. It's one of those things that you do unconsciously a lot. Sure. But I think like we talked about before with revision, like sometimes you want to go back and look at where your perspective is looking. Yeah. And how it's affecting everything. Yeah. How that impacts the development of the story overall. This is unrelated, but I think part of why I enjoyed this story so much is because it is just 
about him surviving. There's nothing like deeper or richer going on here. It felt like an escape from a lot of the entertainment I consume these days, <laughs> which is so much louder and like happening on so many levels and kind of like uh, trying to be more than it really is or, you know, like trying to like impact you somehow. It's just a life and death story without a whole lot about who this person is as a person, as a human. And it's still gutting because we can all identify on like a very like animal level what it's like to look death in the face and to see it coming slowly and to see that there were things that you weren't able to do to help yourself. But I wasn't crying. And I think the difference is like um, if you can think about this story being blown up into a novel, if you felt the instinct to do that, like what's missing and what would like push it over the edge would be like, why do we want this character to to survive it doesn't make the story any less but i think that's what would make it more would be like this particular guy uh, he's trying to reconnect with his son or, you know some stupid shit that you could add to it you know that would make him like yeah, a, a, a sympathetic character yeah exactly yeah about this the workshop they'd be like i want to know more about this man does he have a name what's his family background is he from germany that's the difference right that's why this is yeah. like a quiet story because it's, it's just about him surviving but I still felt everything I was supposed to feel. It's almost easier to sympathize with someone looking death in the face when you know less about why you would want them to stay alive. It felt like an escape because it's so simple. Like, I want to read more Jack London when everything feels like loud and annoying. <laughs> but yeah, that's my takeaway is just like the setting. I don't think you can hope to do what he does where you'd have to really know your setting for it to be the entirety of your story. I don't necessarily think we all need to go write stories like this, but I think like we said, you can layer setting in natural setting and it can be a character and you can layer in unnatural setting like a building and it really 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 is important yeah my takeaway is i mentioned earlier just the sense of immediacy yeah for this story it works really well because everything is immediate in front of him and like what he has to concentrate on is the moment in order to survive but i think pursuing that sense of immediacy for any story could probably help in each scene is like being in the moment making us as readers be in that moment like that don't reach for backstory too much. Don't like try to get out of the scene so much. Just what is happening in the moment is usually where the drama is. It's the immediacy of the story. Like where is the emotional moment? I want to be in the middle of that. That's where we should focus the reader on. Even those little moments in this this story where he's like kind of thinking about the future, but that's immediate to his thought process. It's immediate yeah, yeah, to yeah. his emotional moment. It's where his mind is in that moment. Right. And so we go with him. So those kinds of things, just paying attention to the immediacy. That's my takeaway for this one. Sweet. And also don't go out when it's minus 75. All right. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining our Patreon. Your support helps us keep the show running. Find out more at patreon.com slash whyisthisgoodpodcast. And for industry news, writing tips, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at napleswritersworkshop.com.